Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Not only today, but we thank you for you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word always remains timeless and true. No matter what culture we're living in, no matter what time period we're living in, no matter what uh, situation we're dealing with, we can find our answers in your word. It may take a little digging, but that's what you want us to do to find that treasure. Lord, we thank you that th these aren't just words in a self-help book either, but these are words of life. This is power. This is a sword that cuts us to the quick so that it's just us and you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would go forth as we uh, explore your word today, that our lives would be changed in a little way. Uh, we'd be a little bit different walking out of here today. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The advent of social media about 15 years ago introduced a whole new facet to criminal prosecution and defense in a courtroom setting. And I know this illustration is silly, but for the sake of this illustration, <laughs> so I'm not offending anybody, suppose that eating pizza was now a legit crime, okay? Suppose, just for the sake of this illustration, I know it's, I know it's silly, but su uh, suppose that eating pizza was now a legit crime. If you were found in possession of a slice, you'd go away for a few years. Now, suppose you posted a photo of yourself on uh, eating pizza on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I don't know who actually eats pizza this way, but say this was a picture of yourself you posted on one of those accounts. Someone saw this photo and ratted you out to the police who then come arrest you and imagine you're now on trial. Current social media legal precedence is so confusing that the end result of your trial could go either way. I'm not making any of this up. I got these real court cases involving social media posts from an actual legal services website. So these are actual examples. One case involved comments found on a state's witness Facebook account. The state's witness admitted that it was indeed her account, but then claimed that her account was hacked at the, at that, and that the relevant comments were not authored by her. Seems pretty convenient, isn't it? The court agreed, claiming precedence of a previous case that upheld that all social media evidence must be proven to be authored by the person in question. In that case, if we took your illegal pizza case, you could claim that your account was hacked, this picture was photoshopped, and your case could be tossed out. Now, before you get into your head that that is a strategy that always works in a legal setting, here's the pendulum swing. Another case involved pictures and comments found on a defendant's MySpace account. The defendant claimed that these materials shouldn't be admissible as evidence because their authenticity and authorship had not been cr clearly proven. Seems pretty straightforward, right? That it should go along the same lines as the first one. Wrong. In this case, the court agreed with the prosecution that the materials presented were too distinctive to not be the defendant's authentic posts. When the defendant appealed, the higher court agreed with the lower court and, and ruled, and I got a kick out of the double standard here, quote, that although many scenarios existed where a great conspiracy took place to create a page under the defendant's name, all the circumstantial facts taken together were so compelling as to make them admissible, end quote. 
So would you get convicted for posting a picture of yourself on social media eating pizza in a world where that was illegal? I have no clue. Depends on who you got as, as, as your judge. My only advice is don't post incriminating pictures or comments on social media. Either that or still using MySpace is a bad idea. When the Apostle John is presenting the case for who he has described as the Word, the Light, and the second person of the Eternal Trinity as being one and the same as Jesus of Nazareth, he conversely presents it with compelling evidence that no one could legally question. He did this for two reasons. To present a reasonable and legally compelling case to unbelievers. That faith in Jesus really was reasonable and not the rantings of a crazy person, and to bolster the faith of the church. Because of this, the reasons for this book, as well as this section that we're taking a look at today, are every bit as relevant today as they were 1900 years ago. So, let's jump in. Like we've been discussing the past couple of months, the whole first third of chapter 1 in the Gospel of John, known as the prologue, is John explaining the deity of Jesus. He, he sets up the foundation for that first, the deity of Jesus. He's described as the word or the personification of God's wisdom and law through which the whole universe was created and continues to be held together. He's described as the light of the world or the manifestation of the very presence and wisdom of God. This manifestation of God's presence is then further explained by this deity adding human nature to his God nature. He is the begotten one, or better translated, the only one in its class, because he's the only one in all of human history to be both fully God in nature and essence and fully man in nature and essence. It's all well and good to describe such a person, but now the Apostle John must make the clear case that this person that he's been describing, this, the, all these verses, is one and the same as Jesus of Nazareth. See, most Jewish people had been anticipating a Messiah for hundreds of years. There was no doubt from the Jewish scriptures known to us as the Old Testament that a Messiah was coming. The problem was that a lot of them didn't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was that Messiah. Likewise, most Gentiles of Greek and Roman religious background couldn't conceive in their minds at all that a deity would bother himself with the human world. So the Apostle John sets out to provide the case for Jesus of Nazareth being both the Jewish Messiah and God in the flesh for the pagan Gentiles. John had already referenced his first piece of evidence, or evidence A, in verses 6 through 8, when he says, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. Now, in our passage this morning, John further explains this piece of evidence for his case. Remember, John's whole purpose for writing the Gospel of John was a missionary mentality. He wanted as many people from all different backgrounds and religions, both Jewish and all types of pagan, to hear about Jesus and put their faith in him for their salvation. For the Gentiles, this is a little bit of an easier case. 
In fact, John has already presented his basic case for them to put their faith in God and therefore Jesus in the prologue. And here's why. The Greek and Roman deities were petty beings who constantly changed their minds and really had worse morals than some human beings. For instance, there were some who had a bunch of affairs in the Greek and Roman mythology. While they were said to be the originators of life and different aspects of life, they did not want to have anything to do with the human world. The human world was disgusting to them, and they wanted to distance themselves from them as much as possible. It was the original form of social distancing. All their worshipers did were offer sacrifices and prayers to incur their favor. That's all you could do. John has already presented a God in complete juxtaposition to those whole pagan belief systems. This was a God who not only created the entire world and continues to hold it together like the Greeks believed, but this God came to earth to dwell among his people in order to connect with them, something that was unheard of in Greek and Roman religion. Furthermore, this God came to earth to dwell with humanity for a purpose. He didn't just come and say, hey, what's up, guys? He came for a purpose, not to curse them, not to judge them, and not to test them, but to offer them adoption into his family as his children if they only believe in him. That was his purpose. If one simply believed in that basic truth, you know what that did? That tossed out the entire Greek and Roman belief systems. And then it wasn't too far of a jump to extend that to belief in Jesus of Nazareth being that manifestation of that God. However, the Apostle John's case to his fellow Jewish people was a little bit harder. To them, he needed to present compelling evidence in direct connection to the Jewish law. Enter John the Baptist. Like I mentioned a few weeks ago, the quickest way for the Apostle John to connect Jesus of Nazareth to this being he's been describing as the Word was to reference John the Baptist's declaration of who he was. Why? Because at the time of John writing this book, the Gospel of John, mostly every Jewish person in the entire ancient Mediterranean world knew about John the Baptist. In fact, we know from the book of Acts that there were people living in Ephesus, the major Roman trade city the Apostle John wrote this book from, who had been baptized by John the Baptist. They had already made their way all the way up to Ephesus. So the Apostle John used John the Baptist as his first piece of evidence, or evidence A. The Apostle John has been very clear that John the Baptist was a witness who gave testimony in a legal sense to the authenticity of Jesus of Nazareth being the Jewish Messiah. Again, the Apostle John first referenced this evidence A in verses 6 through 8, and now he explains further why. He expands on this. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 1. We're going to be picking up in verses 19 through 21. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, look it up. It's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. You can look it up in the table of contents or look it up on your favorite smartphone Bible app. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Not a loaded question at all, right? Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, well, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. 
are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Notice his answers get shorter and shorter. He's getting a little irritated at that point. If the Apostle John is providing the case for the defense of Jesus as the Messiah, we have the, the, the priests and Levites as the prosecuting lawyers. The, the, the priests or the Levites are those who served in the Jewish temple, and we find out later on that they're sent by the Pharisees. So in this case, these are the prosecuting lawyers. Who are you? The Apostle John, in a brilliant way, provides his evidence in narrative form. See, remember, he's trying to engage as many people as he can to read this book. And we all know, nothing will dissuade people from doing that faster than just presenting something in the way, in the way of dry legalese, right? Give somebody a memo, they're going to toss it in the trash. Give them a book, they may actually look at that. The prosecuting lawyers ask three questions of this witness. All are dependent on the Jewish scriptures, which is a second witness to Jesus as the Messiah. The first question is, who are you? Now, instead of this just being a general question, we know, that, we know what the priests are really getting at by the answer that John the Baptist gives. He replies with, well, if, I know what you're asking, and I'm not the Christ, or I'm not the prophesied Messiah. In most of the Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah is the king from David's bloodline, whose kingdom would last forever. The Messiah was the deliverer of God's people from oppression. And the Messiah, which was often overlooked, would be the suffering servant of God. All of these expectations were wrapped up in that one question that the priests asked John the Baptist, or, who are you? Are you the Messiah? It was a legitimate question because the Old Testament prophecies also included the anticipation that the Messiah would turn the Jewish people's hearts back to God and lead them in national repentance. And what was John the Baptist actively doing? Calling people to repent of their sin and turn back to God. But he flat out replies that no, he was not the Messiah. Next, in the logical step as to who John the Baptist was in Jewish understanding, was asking him if he was Elijah. Uh, you might think to yourself, that's a silly question. Why would they ask him if he's Elijah? Well, remember, the prophet Elijah did not what? Die. The prophet Elijah did not die an earthly death. Rather, we read in 2 Kings 2 that Elijah was caught up from earth in a chariot of fire and a whirlwind. Furthermore, in the last Old Testament book to be written before the 400 years of prophetic silence between Malachi and the birth of Jesus, it's prophesied that Elijah would reappear on the earth before the end age. Well after Elijah has been taken up into heaven, we read in Malachi, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. When John the Baptist's dad is given a prophecy about who his son would be, the angel tells him that John would preach in the spirit of Elijah, as in that he would be the one to usher in this messianic age. But John testifies that he's not, in fact, Elijah himself. Elijah himself will show up again, and both times it's in direct connection with Jesus, not John the Baptist. The first time is at Jesus' transfiguration, and the second time as one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. Elijah shows up the first time in connection with Jesus' first coming, and will show up again a second time in connection with Jesus' 
second coming. So while John the Baptist's ministry was in the spirit of Elijah and that it was in direct connection with calling Israel to repentance, he was not Elijah himself. And lastly, and wanting to exhaust all of their prophetic options, the priests now ask John the Baptist if he's the prophet. Now you've heard me describe John the Baptist as the last Old Testament prophet and the transition figure between the Old and New Testaments. But who the priests and John meant by the prophet is different. In Deuteronomy 18.18, God says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I command him. Now, when you read that, that sounds like every other prophet that God called to be his mouthpiece, doesn't it? That God would raise up from among the, his fellow Israelites and put his words in his mouth to speak to the, to, to the Israelites. That sounds like every other prophet that's in the Old Testament. So what differentiates this prophet that the priests only referred to as the prophet from every other prophet in the Old Testament, which John the Baptist immediately understands and then rejects him as the fulfillment. In Deuteronomy 18.18, God tells Moses that he would raise up a prophet from Israel like Moses. In Deuteronomy 34.10, we read, there has never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now, why is this important? While the rest of the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, were written by Moses, the last two chapters of Deuteronomy, chapter 33 and chapter 34, which this is a part of, which record Moses' death, they were most likely written by someone else. Who was it and why is it important? While many possibilities have been raised, the one that is the most messianic and makes the most sense, especially with our passage this morning, is that the prophet Ezra wrote Deuteronomy 33 and 34. Now, why is this important? Ezra lived and wrote his combined historical accounts of Nehemiah and Ezra, those books we have in the Old Testament, during the post Babylonian exile time of the Jewish people's restoration in Judah, post-Babylonian exile. This included both the rebuilding of the Jewish temple as well as the restoration of the Jewish people to follow the Mosaic law. Again, why is this important? It's the events of Nehemiah and Ezra in the Old Testament that are the last recorded historical accounts of Israel before the 400 years of prophetic silence. So if Ezra wrote Deuteronomy 33 and 34, what could he do? He could look back on all the history of Israel up to that point, as well as all their prophets, and confidently write, there has never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. That's the prophet that the Jewish people highly anticipated, and that's the prophet that the uh, priests asked John the Baptist if he's it. It was a prophet who knew God face to face, like Moses, who would speak the words that God gave to him. Who is the only one who lived after Moses and after Ezra who knew God face to face and spoke the words that God gave him? Jesus. 
The Apostle John is providing this conversation between John the Baptist and these priests as evidence B in logic for Jesus to the Jewish people. And the Greeks and their philosophers loved studying logic, so this is no surprise to them either. All the prophetic options for the deliverer have been exhausted. The Messiah, Elijah, and the prophet. And John the Baptist is none of them. But John the Baptist was a respected figure in the Jewish world of the time. Crowds of people flocked to the Jordan River to hear him speak. And he stood toe-to-toe with the priests, the Pharisees, and even Herod Antipas. Antipas wanted to execute John the Baptist right when he arrested him, but didn't. Why? Because he was afraid of a riot. Because all the people believed that John was a prophet. So if John the Baptist, who everyone in the Jewish world highly regarded as a prophet, wasn't any of these prophesied figures, who was it? Who was he? That's where the Apostle John brings in evidence C, verses 22 through 23. Then they said to him, who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? Who do you, what do you say about yourself? And John the Baptist's reply is, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. If John the Baptist was none of the prophetic options, who was he? In verse 23, John the Baptist quotes directly from Isaiah 43. The voice of one calling out, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In its immediate context, when this was originally written, this is a prophetic reference to clearing the way through the desert for God's people to return from Babylonian exile, which happened in 537 BC. 500 years before, over 500 years before what? The birth of Christ, right? Why is that important? That prophecy was seemingly already fulfilled in Jewish understanding. Over 500 years before this, the prophecy was given by Isaiah, and the fulfillment happened about 500 years before John was baptizing people. So to these priests, why in the world was John the Baptist claiming to be something that was already fulfilled 500 years prior to that? John the Baptist, as the last Old Testament prophet, was revealing that Isaiah 40, verse 3, was one of those already but also not yet prophecies. Yes, the immediate fulfillment happened 500 years before that, but there was much more to it that was happening before these priests' very eyes if they only opened them and saw what was going on. Just as the Jewish people needed a clear way through the desert in order to be restored to their land and the practice of that faith by rebuilding their temple, in a way, God returning to the land John the Baptist was in the desert preparing the way for God to literally come and restore his people to true faith in him. So who John the Baptist was claiming to be was not any of these prophesied figures, all these great figures. All he was claiming to be was merely one preparing the way for God himself to arrive. A construction worker leveling the ground so that God himself could arrive. Since this was the prosecution, the priests and the Levites, do you think they were very happy with John's response that he gave? No, not at all. 
Their next question, straight out of the mouth of the Pharisees who held that very strict adherence to the Jewish law, was this. If you're not anyone, any of these important prophetic figures, what gives you the right to be calling people to repent and get baptized? Verses 24 through 26. Now they had been sent by the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? What gives you the right? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. See, the Pharisees' beef with John is this. According to one biblical scholar, the most widely known ceremonial once-for-all washing, or baptism, was when pagan Gentiles converted to Judaism. They did this to now be identified with Judaism as their new faith. This was even known among the Greek philosophers. But here, the seeming nobody named John was baptizing people who were already Jewish and calling them to turn back to God. In the Pharisees' eyes, we can very easily see them thinking, who in the world does this guy think he is? He's not a priest. He's not a Pharisee. He's not even any one of the Old Testament prophesied figures. He admitted all of that to us. Why is he yelling at already Jewish people to turn back to God and get baptized like they were some kind of filthy Gentiles converting to Judaism? John's response is just amazing because it's not a defense of himself. He again puts the focus on the one who's coming after him. In his mind, and therefore his response, he is only a nobody. He's confirming everything that the priests and Levites are yelling at him. Uh, you're right. I am only a nobody. I'm merely a humble servant. And as we'll see, I'm even less than a household servant. He's not claiming to be anything or anyone of any importance. All he's doing is being a voice in the desert wearing scratchy camel's hair clothing and living off of bugs and wild honey to call people to refocus on God. The comment about how the priests and Levites and the Pharisees who sent them don't know that this one that John the Baptist is referring to is a twist of biting irony. Those who everyone saw, and they themselves saw, as the religious authorities and most knowledgeable when it came to the Jewish law, didn't even know who the Messiah, the one who Elijah was connected to, or the prophet, and the real kicker was that he was already there among them. That must have rubbed these religious authorities the wrong way. Not only did this guy claim the Messiah was already among them, Yet nothing was the way it should be if the Messiah was, in fact, already come. But this guy was claiming they had no clue who it was. The direct line of connection from this statement is, if you, the experts on Judaism, don't know who the Messiah is, who is already among you, what does that say about your so-called religiosity or spirituality? This week, we talked about two pieces of evidence that affirm Jesus of Nazareth as the God-man and the Jewish Messiah. Those were John the Baptist, as well as the scriptural evidence for the Messiah, evidence A and evidence B. According to the Jewish law, this in and of itself 
was enough evidence for the truth of a case. They only required two witnesses. And John's already presented two witnesses, John the Baptist and the scriptures. Next week, we'll be looking at another piece of evidence. See, John's, John's not uh, okay with just ending with the regular two witnesses in a, in a Jewish legal case. In fact, he goes all the way up to eight witnesses, just so there isn't any doubt in anybody's mind that there's enough legal evidence for Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah. Next week, we're going to be looking at the third piece of evidence directly from God himself to affirm this truth. But let me ask all of us here, though, a question. If there was no other evidence, if there was no other evidence for Jesus being our salvation and the subsequent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and transforming our lives from the inside out, other than what could be seen in our everyday lives, would there be enough evidence to convince someone else to also put their faith in Jesus? If there suddenly did not exist any more copies of the Bible and all other proofs, evidences, apologetic defenses for the truth of Jesus and salvation found in him alone, all of that suddenly disappeared and the only evidence that remained was what we portrayed to the world about our faith, would others see enough evidence to determine it worthwhile to do the same? Do we respond to frustrating situations the way we want to or the way that Jesus wants us to? Do we look for every opportunity in conversations with others to inject the hope of Jesus into those conversations? Do others see a radical transformation of our lives that could only happen through the Holy Spirit? Do others see us responding to crises, whether national or personal, with more fear or with stout-hearted faith. When we experience loss, do others see rage, or do others see a peace that comes with trusting that God's plan is still perfect, no matter how tough it is? Do others see that we place Jesus as our priority in our lives, with the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our finances, the way that we use our talents, the way that we use our skills. If somebody looked at our life and saw how we use all of that, would they see enough evidence to also want faith in Jesus themselves? Do others see us trying to achieve all we can achieve and accomplish in this earthly life? Or do they also see us as a nobody, simply content to point others to Jesus? That's it. That's the only mark I want to make on this world, is to be a nobody whose only purpose is to point others to Jesus. And at the end of it all, would others see a life spent on selfishness and having many regrets? Or a life spent on knowing Jesus better, knowing his peace better, and bearing the evidence of that to an unbelieving world? How much evidence is there in your life? What are our everyday lives and the sum total of our lives being air, uh, bearing evidence of? Are they bearing evidence of who we are, what our dreams are, what we want? Or are they bearing evidence of who the truth of Jesus is? Like John the Baptist, let us simply be evidence. Let us simply be nobodies. 
Let us simply be one more piece of evidence of the life-changing truth and love of who Jesus really is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, this, for these few verses in John chapter 1 that tell us how John responded to these questions and what that reveals to us about how our lives need to be, what kind of evidence that needs to be seen in our lives as to who Jesus is. John was content to be a nobody, pointing others to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would be the same way, that we would let go of any human ambition, human achievement, human dreams, things that we want, discontentment, frustration with things not being the way that we want them to be, that we would let all of that go and say, all I want to be is evidence for Jesus, just one more piece of evidence of who Jesus really is to this unbelieving world. Let us go in the power and the strength of that truth. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.